I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Paolo, does L.A. have the worst fans in sports? God, I think after this week, I think everybody would want you to believe that. I mean, we, we do have a reputation. I don't know if I want to include myself in, in that group, but we do have a reputation for showing up late to sporting events, for being casual watchers, for, you know, leaving after the seventh inning, you know, the whole thing. So I guess when you think about it, it there we are pretty down the line in terms of the best fans in sports, but... I don't know. I think I would say we're still pretty passionate about most sports. I think if you go to any Laker game or Dodger game, you'll see that. Um, golf, though, I, I don't know about that. It was it was an interesting one out there this week for sure. Yeah, and we'll talk more about that later. The the somewhat odd atmosphere, but that atmosphere wasn't necessarily the fault of sports fans. As somebody who grew up a, a Lakers fan, I feel the impulse to defend. LA sports fans and point out that it's hard to get anywhere in the city. I can understand why somebody might not want to go to a sporting event or might not get there exactly on time. You know? Yeah. I think if, if you want to have a critique about the LA sports scene, you have to have lived here at least a minimum of two years to truly understand the situation that goes on here in terms of sporting events and traffic and just all of that stuff. So yeah, I think it's, it's a little more nuanced. All right, you're listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison. That's Paolo Ugetti, a staff writer for ESPN. Later in the show, I'll bring on Joseph Lamagna to talk about the venue, which was, of course, LA Country Club. But first, Paolo and I are going to run down the main competitive storylines. Wyndham Clark was our winner at 10 under. Roy McElroy was one stroke behind and solo second, followed by Scotty Scheffler, Cameron Smith, and a three-way tie for fifth between Tommy Fleetwood, Minwoo Lee and the 54 hole leader, Ricky Fowler. So Paolo, what, what exactly did you do on Sunday at LACC? Who did you follow? What was kind of your, your plan or agenda? Yeah, I think everybody was sort of hoping for the final group to be Ricky and Rory. Right. And then when it wasn't, I think it became pretty clear to me what I would do in terms of who do I follow? I think the Scotty Scheffler and Rory McIlroy group, group was the one that most people were following, I would say. It was, it was a big crowd of us kind of following them. And I think part of that was because a lot of people, myself included, thought Scotty still had a real shot after finishing Eagle Birdie. And I thought, you know, he seems a little bit inevitable in terms of how he just rises up to the leaderboard no matter how well or poorly he's playing. So, yeah, I followed Rory and Scotty and just kind of watched them go through the front nine. I think the front nine is such a fun set of holes to watch especially for a tournament because they are you know as we saw pretty gettable um they were not as gettable on sunday i would say especially for rory who just had a you know it's it's a tough thing you know you you, you look at those 15 to 20 feet whatever however you want to describe them and you know most of the time they're not going to go in right and so it was tough watching him grind over a lot of putts that were a few inches from going in or you know had a, had, a, had a shot but just did not catch the right break. So I watched Rory for the front, front nine. 
and kind of bounce a little bit back and forth in the back between, um, you know, Wyndham's group, Wyndham and Ricky's group and Rory's group. And it was pretty compelling there down the stretch in terms of needing, well, not needing, but Rory needing Clark to, to, to falter and hit, still having no shot at a birdie since the first hole. It was pretty crazy scene in that sense. What were some of the most memorable individual moments out there, whether they were golf related or not? What kind of comes to mind as an image that that will stick with you? I think uh, standing between uh, 15T and 14 green was a pretty compelling place to be when Rory's group was first coming through because, you know, he had that the drop that he got that from the, from the ball in the bunker. And then, you know, he had the, the par putt that he needed to, to save par and missed it. So just watching that, him moving on to 15, and then just a few minutes later, seeing the shot from Wyndham Clark, the second shot come in and land on the green to have a shot at Eagle. I think that's the one that will stick with me because it was kind of, it felt at that moment that the tournament was over. Obviously then Wyndham went on to bogey, um, I believe what, 15 right and 16. 15 yeah yeah he 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 didn't yeah he didn't get up and down from uh behind the green there right so there was still more golf to play but i think if i were to look back that's kind of the moment where i was like oh okay this this one's over like rory once again couldn't just you know make the right putts to be able to stay in this and to, to be able to win that that's when i felt like because that that second shot into 14 green was incredible way right? with him like i think everybody sort of realized it at the time like all right that's game <laughs> Unbelievable shot. And what it showed is that Wyndham Clark was fully ready to win the tournament because you don't hit that shot in that moment unless you're ready. And so that's what he showed. And even if he bogeyed the next hole, it was a two shot swing on that hole. And so that was really, you know, when you look back on these tournaments, you can identify any number of turning points going back to the first hole of the week on Thursday. Rory missed a short putt on number eight. That was a big deal. But 14 was really just kind of the symbolic representative moment of that swing where Wyndham was just hitting the ball so well that he was able to hit it from 282 to 20 feet under the most intense pressure possible. Whereas Rory was, I mean, he was just a little bit off. He was hitting the ball so well, but he's Rory McIlroy. He always does that. And that wedge into... 14 just wasn't good it wasn't the type of wedge that that you hit when you're truly in major winning form and it's a testament to his talent his ability that he was even able to be so close in spite of not having all of the components of his game together yeah i think i was struck by just the margins right the how fine those margins are in terms of rory because you know, I wasn't there at the old course last year when he had the lead and just could not do enough to, to you know, to hold off Cameron Smith. And this one, you know, there was some differences, but this one just felt like there were just none of the breaks. He wasn't getting any of the breaks, you know. And I think he even talked about it after his round. He said on 14 on that wedge shot, you know, if I would have waited maybe 15, 20 more seconds, the wind might have been differently and the, the gusts might have died down and that would have been the right shot, you know. And it's like it's crazy to think about that those – margins are so fine in that way that you know 15 second wait could have you know could have been the difference right or a putt that drops the other way like the putt on eight i think that's the one and he said it he said he would want to have that one back the putt to short putt for birdie that he missed and just all these little moments you know and i think um 14 kind of really embodied that in some ways because i thought that was a hole where rory could really go after it right i mean it's 
hole doesn't totally fit his shot shape in some ways, right? But And then he just hit a draw right into the rough, and it just was like, okay, like that's the place where you needed to go for a green and two. And not a lot of players, I felt like, did that, which is what made Wyndham's, you know, second shot that much more impressive. Not a lot of players hit the green at all, right? There were some who went for it, but a lot of them ended up left on the 15th tee or somewhere around that green. It was so hard to hit that green in two because you needed to be supremely long and supremely accurate in order to cover the distance of that hole in two shots. But Rory is one of the few players out there who can do that fairly regularly. Just cover the sheer distance. He is capable of doing that. And so that's a hole that really gives an advantage to long players, right? You've got to be long to carry that bunker and you've got to be long to get on that green and two. And so that's where Rory needs to take advantage and, and, and not make bogey. Now, what, what are some of your observations? Uh, you know, we should be talking a little bit about Wyndham Clark here, obviously, but one more question about Rory. What were some of your observations about his uh, state of mind or his approach to the game, you know, beyond the fact that he was just kind of missing putts? Like he, he was, he was a little bit, the putts weren't falling and sometimes that happens, but what were some of, what was your sense of where he was at mentally during this round? I think, it, you know, I think he looked pretty focused. I think he, he, it was admirable that he stuck to his game plan, right? He was not, a, he was not overly aggressive. And I think this goes for the whole week. Um, you know, he seemed to manage the golf course really well. He hit the right spots, you know, on eight, he always had a shot to go for it in two. And yeah, I think he just played really smart golf and he was really focused. And I think kind of like at St. Andrews, right? It's like you you kind of wish that maybe he would have been a little more aggressive in certain spots, but then he could have also been out of it. I think something I think about is some of those up and downs for pars too that he had on the back nine were really impressive as well. So it's like if one of those doesn't drop, then we're not even discussing how slim the margins were. So um, yeah, I would say he, he's, he was pretty focused. He was pretty locked in and I think he just, he said afterwards, I executed my game plan, which, you know, you can't fault him for that, right? And I think the scene afterwards was pretty, pretty remarkable just to see him dealing with, you know, the realization and the, you know, the acceptance of just coming up short again and getting closer and closer, but not being able to just get over that hump. Yeah, Rory's in this weird position right now where he gets a lot of scrutiny and even a lot of criticism for his shortcomings precisely because he's always on that big stage. He's always in contention. Whereas somebody like Scotty Scheffler in this tournament, yeah, he was there, but we're not going to criticize him as much because he wasn't really all that close on Sunday. Right. And so, uh, you know, there's a, there's a tweet that Kevin Van Valkenburg sent out that I, that I liked, uh, where Kevin says Roy's play today should absolutely be critiqued. But it's kind of fascinating that we save our strongest criticisms for athletes who finish second as opposed to third or fifth or 20th. Being almost great annoys people more than being slightly worse. And that's a good summary of kind of where we are at in the Rory McElroy story. The player who ended up winning was Wyndham Clark. And when we got to the end of the tournament, I, to be perfectly honest, I, I was a bit at a loss as to what to say about Wyndham Clark's victory, except that he played extraordinarily well on Sunday in spite of maybe not being completely on form, getting in a couple of nasty situations on holes and being able to get up and down, especially on eight and nine 
on eight. He was in the Barranca and he had a hard time getting out of the Barranca. But once he did, he got up and down for a bogey where a lot of players might have done something much worse. And then on nine, he was in a bunker or sort of on the edge of the bunker to the left of the ninth green and basically in an impossible spot, a spot where he had to play well away from the hole and let the ball kind of trickle back. And he got that thing up and down. He got he got his his chip shot within, you know, eight to ten feet and he sank the putt. Those were two big, big time up and downs in a spot where he could have really let Rory back into this thing. So that's those are kind of my big take takeaways for Wyndham Clark. But but say you were kind of writing a, a game story about him. Yeah. What are some of the things that you would focus on? I think that's something I've realized or was thinking about is the last few majors, I feel like we've had a couple guys who have ended up in the leaderboard going into Sunday or close near the leaderboard and everybody thinks, oh, this guy's gonna fall away, right? It's not not one of the premier players in golf, so they're gonna you know, I don't I don't give him much of a shot going into Sunday. And like this time Wyndham felt like that guy except he went out there and did it, right? So I think he kind of we've had a lot of really good elite major winners recently and I feel like he's kind of I, I don't want to say he's not one of those players, but he's definitely a, an exception, right, to the last few major wins in terms of um pedigree. But he went out there and did it. Like I think that's the thing is, you know, with his with that shot on fourteen, I would say the short game was probably would save them in a lot of places. The flop shot, I guess if you want to call it on eleven, was ridiculous. And I think like if I were to just just think about him, it's like, okay, well, he had to overcome a lot of narratives, right? A lot of the Ricky narrative, the Rory narrative, even the Scotty narrative, right? But he just did it by literally literally hitting all the right shots. And I think that's maybe the way I would frame it and then kind of look at his win is he just hit all the right shots at the right time, even on 18 Saturday, that shot he hit into 18 and making that putt. What you, you kind of just have to hand it to him at this, at that point, right? Cause he just hit the right shots at the right time. And whether, you know, that means he's here to stay and will compete in further majors. I don't know if golf is so deep, right. But I think for, for, for this tournament, he was the best player in terms of shot making and also just recovery, which this course demanded of, of a bunch of players the question about Wyndham Clark's future is obviously very hard to answer we don't know if he's going to stick around at this level he very well could and we could end up in a situation where this championship is looked back upon sort of like the Aaron Hills U.S. Open which Brooks Kepka won at the time I remember people were kind of like well that's kind of random Brooks sort of seems boring that's a bit of a disappointing major. And yeah, that's kind of the outcome here. We have a bunch of guys in second, third, fourth place who maybe would be more exciting winners because we're more familiar with them and we want to see those players rack up majors and start to get into that historic conversation. And sure, Wyndham did not deliver that this week, and maybe he'll fade away back into the middle of the pack, as some past major winners have. But there's also a possibility that he becomes a Brooks Kepka type because he does have the game for that. This is not a f- this didn't feel like a fluky win. He's super long. He is a great iron player. He has a terrific short game that holds up under pressure. So he has all the skills that he needs and. Whether those stay as sharp as they were this week is completely unanswerable right now, but it's very possible. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is Wyndham Clark 
five majors is what you're saying. The next <laughs> He's the Brooks next Brooks Cup. <laughs> yeah, that's gonna yeah. <laughs> that's gonna be the headline from this podcast. Right. That's gonna yeah. get aggregated. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's it's a great point. I think you're right. I think he he ha- he has the makings of being able to stick around for for a while. And I think I don't know. I think maybe the golf course too. Right. It's you guys have talked plenty about how different the U.S. Open test has been. Obviously, there's been a lot of bad discourse about the, the the subject as well this week but you know maybe it just kind of fit him fit him well and then if they go back to a more quote-unquote traditional u.s open maybe it doesn't fit him well right so i think that's something to to think about too going forward well let's talk a little bit about something related to the golf course we'll talk more about the architecture and those matters with joseph lamagna later on in this podcast but you are an L.A. native, as we kind of implied at, at the beginning of the pod. L.A. Country Club was a sort of controversial venue this week or became one, not just because of its unusual design, but because of the atmosphere on course as it came across on TV and some of the questions about how the club and the membership contributed to creating that atmosphere through their demands about the size of the crowd and where people could go on the course and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, I was on the course for a few days. I can say that those concerns are valid, right? There are some things to say about the atmosphere on site. What did you make of that issue overall? And maybe speaking specifically about Sunday, was it different then? Yeah, I think it's it's funny because I feel like I maybe should have seen some of this coming. I, I went to the course way early in the process. The USGA had a first look day where we got to walk the course. And first thing I thought of was, how are they going to get fans in here? Like, it's such a weird setup for watching golf just built into that canyon, most of that course. I'm like, how are they going to get fans in there? And they were like, oh, we're going to build out a few things. And they're building the bridge over Wilshire. So, but, but I think there was just like a, they were starting from a bad place in terms of like how to create these big atmospheres, right? That's, that's one issue. Um, I think the other thing is, yeah, as we, as was reported, I think Joel Beal from golf digest reported that the club tried to almost buy all the tickets. Right. And, 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 and there was, there was definitely a sense of a corporate vibe for, for, you know, during a lot of the tournament. And that's not surprising. I mean, this is a club that, you know, I think when I went the first time for that, for that first look day, it was like, no, no photos and no phones in the, in the, in the clubhouse, you know, like just all these very distinct rules. And that's not dissimilar to other country clubs across the country, you know, I would say, but in LA, I think that takes a, you know, goes up, goes up a level, if you will. I, and that's the reputation it also has in the city. It's not con- it considered the, the more or less the anti-celebrity club. It's, they don't want any fuss. They don't want any kind of like fanfare. So on the one hand, it's kind of shocking that they allowed this tournament to be there, right? But on the other hand, they are a very golf-focused club in terms of they love their golf course and wanted to showcase it. But it sounds like they wanted to showcase it in a very specific way to a very specific type and amount of people, right? And so that's where I think the issue is. Um, you know, that being said, on Sunday, I thought the atmosphere was great. I mean, I think there are definitely more people on hand. I think it felt like, and I, I don't have proof to back this up, but I feel like they let fans go into places where maybe they weren't letting them in before, or maybe they were just more fans and that's what it felt like. But it definitely felt like in some spots it was more crowded, especially on 18, the kind of going up one and down 18 was great atmosphere. And I think like people really came out in full force. Uh, I don't know. It's just, it was different, but it's, 
did not feel like that all week, right? So I think that's where you kind of notice the difference between Sunday and the rest of the days. And, you know, maybe part of that is the LA fandom aspect of it, where they're like, oh, we'll go Sunday. You know, <laughs> we won't go Thursday, uh, Friday, or Saturday. Yeah, and, and maybe the the people who had tickets to this event, whether they were corporate guests or LA members or some of the lucky few who managed to get publicly available tickets, of which there were not many relatively, Maybe a lot of those folks were somewhat complacent about it and said, I've got this ticket, you know, I'll, you know, I'll go on Sunday, whatever. Right. It's, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, whereas, you know, when you have an event that's more accessible to the public, there's maybe more competition to get on the site and, and see something. And so you're excited about going on Thursday because maybe that's your only chance. I feel like a lot of the people who are there, you know, were comfortable in their opportunity to see, some golf. And so maybe they didn't feel that impulse to get yeah. there on Thursday and create a great atmosphere. But, you know, but I will say, like, I think that's the part that was a little tough to kind of square, which is if you go to Riviera every year, I've been there the last two years, right? And the tournament gets packed, especially on the weekend. And the atmosphere is great. And people come out for golf. And I would say by and large, LA has become a pretty big golf town in terms of the golf interest, the golf playing, you know, it just there, there was a lot of that it has been a ton of that the last two years or so since the pandemic. And I think there's a lot of really passionate golf fans out there. And maybe just if there would have been a little more accessibility to the golf course, both on the ground and just getting in ticket wise, I think we could have gotten a better atmosphere and a better vibe for a tournament that, you know, deserved it. Right. And so I think that's, that's a little bit of the, well, we'll see what happens next time. Right. And if they do come back to LA. One regret I have here is that the USGA didn't push harder for the interests of the common fan. And I think that the real shame here is not necessarily the limited capacity. I think they probably could have gotten more fans on site. As you mentioned, Riviera is packed into an LA neighborhood as well. And, you know, they managed to get a bunch of fans out there and, and create an incredible atmosphere. So I don't know. Maybe there could have been more people at LA, I'm not sure. But the ratio of tickets that the public had access to was too low this time. And I think you could feel the effects of that on site. And for me, it goes against what a national championship should be, what a national open should be. Right. It's called the US Open, right. for God's yeah, sakes. And it's still open to players, but it's <laughs> got to be open. It's got to be open to the public. This has got to be the right. people's championship. And yes, it's being held at some of the most exclusive clubs in the nation, but for the week that the tournament is happening, it has to have the feel of a people's championship. And they didn't achieve that this week. And the USGA needs to own that, think about that and try to push a little bit harder for the public interest next time. In my opinion, that's just my take on it. No, I, I, I agree. I think there's, it's kind of a funny dissonance, right? Between like, this open tournament, open to all players, should be open to all fans going to, like you said, these exclusive clubs, right? And and that really kind of just displays golf's <laughs> exclusivity, golf. right? In a very, yeah. very, very, you know, open manner. And But I think you're right. I think that's kind of the the important thing going forward if they do decide to come back to LA is, you know, you kind of, if, if, if you're going to bring in the US Open, if you're going to let it come to your club, you're going to have to deal with everything that that, that implies, right? And you know, what it looks like next time we'll see, but I think that's going to be a crucial thing going forward. Here's my solution, Paolo. Renovate Griffith Park. There we go. Now, now we're talking. Yes. Come on. Please. Come on. 
There's a lot of room out there. Now, it's been years since I've been there, so I don't know what the access points are like. (laughs) They might be a little hairy. But yeah, but you know, listen, they have two courses out there. I think they probably have room. Man, if they turn that into the golf course that it should be, the George Thomas golf course that it should be, and at least made one of them sort of national championship worthy, that would be, that would be a great place yeah. for the people's open wow. in LA. And I trust, I trust that the, the uh, fans will come out for, uh, for that kind of event and, and create some craziness. Oh yeah. No, that you kind of just broke my brain trying to think about how that would even be, <laughs> be possible at Wilson or Harding. I, 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 I need <laughs> be a tough. second to process that. <laughs> That'd be tough. But, it would yeah, have to be yeah. a renovation, not a, yeah. you know, not yeah. a pure restoration. Right. There's been a, th- those courses used to be out in the, you know, all, all of these courses in LA used to be out in open space. Mm-hmm. Right. And since then the city has converged on all of them. Yeah. Same deal with Rancho park, a great public facility, but pretty hemmed in by neighborhoods now. And so, you know, it's, it's tough to find, you know, the great public course that, that can host these championships. And that's why we see so many private courses doing it because they have the resources to do the things that need to be done to their course to, to be able to even come close to hosting in the first yeah. place. Yeah. Not, not every city has a Tory Pines, so that's right. Yeah, yeah. Tory Pines <laughs> for better is, or for worse. <laughs> for better or for worse. Tory Pines is is unique. Yeah, I mean, we focus on the architecture so much, but listen, Tory Pines is a hell of a great venue for getting spectators in, allowing people to watch, and being open to the public. In those senses, it is the gold standard. All right, Paolo. So, uh, are, are you basically done for the year with uh, uh, with uh, big golf tournaments? You're not going to Hoy Lake, are you? No, I, I am. You I'm are going to Hoy Lake. Yeah. Oh man, yeah. that's awesome! I, I didn't I didn't realize that was part of the plan. Yeah, I didn't I didn't I didn't know I was going, but I found out recently a few weeks ago that uh, yeah, we'll be heading up there. So Sweet. I'm excited for that. I've never even been across quote unquote across the pond ever in my life. So I'm um, excited to go over there and you know watch some golf and hopefully play some golf too. All right. Well, I'm jealous, but I'm also very excited for you. So uh, that that should be fun to follow. People can find your writing at ESPN.com. And thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks for having me. All right. Let's take a quick break. And then Joseph LaMagna will join me to talk about LACC. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast, and indeed this week of the Fried Egg Podcast and the Shotgun Start Podcast, was brought to you by B. Dratty. B. Dratty has been a big supporter of the Fried Egg from the beginning, and this week they outfitted us in some really great stuff. The first day I was at LACC, I wore a sport polo along with a champ hoodie from Zero Restriction. There was a bit of a marine layer in the morning, but as the day went on, it warmed up a bit. And so I took off the champ hoodie and just went with the polo. And both were just sort of perfect for the conditions, perfect for walking. And if I had been playing golf, it would have been perfect for that as well. Later in the week, I went with the Sanders polo on many days. In general, things were kind of heating up a bit, so I was going with short sleeves for most of it. 
And the Sanders polo, although it's not like the sport polo in terms of lightness, is still certainly light enough for hot days. And it's super, super comfortable and very classy looking. I also love the Russell quarter zip. This might be my favorite quarter zip of all time. It's really just like... It, it, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a quarter zip guy. I generally go with sweaters, but this has the look and the comfort that I really want to go for when I'm outside and active and it's a little bit cool. So the deal that Bdratty is offering you right now is 30% off at Bdratty.com. That's a pretty good chunk of change. So 30% off at Bdratty.com if you use the code TFE30. So again, that's TFE30 for 30% off at bdratty.com. Thank you to bdratty for supporting us this week, for creating the bdratty house and making it all possible. Really appreciate it. Let's go back to the episode. All right, I'm here with Joseph Lamagna. We're going to talk about the course, the architecture at LACC it was a big topic of discussion this week. So Joseph, why don't we dig right in? What, what are some of your, what is one of your major takeaways about this golf course? Where do you want to start with this? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm super excited to do this. I think it's interesting that you were on the course and I was locked in, watched pretty much every shot that was hit all four days. So it's cool to have the on-site uh, perspective mixed with somebody who's just watching a lot of shots. So, I'm and, by, and by the way, related to that, the on-site perspective is important and it gives you a lot that watching on TV doesn't give you, but a lot of people assume that it's better, but it's not necessarily because when you're on site, you miss so much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to that, I generally, like my dream scenario is generally to be on site like Wednesday, Thursday, and then leave and watch the rest. Yeah. Cause you, you get both, but I don't know if I have like a one overarching takeaway I thought the golf course was awesome and some of the criticism I I think is a little unfair. The one the one major question I have and I would be interested in your perspective on this and maybe some of the people you were talking to who are more knowledgeable than just me sitting on my couch. Did we miss an opportunity to maybe see it a little bit firmed up? And I thought Saturday was the opportunity for that. I I do think we missed a little bit of that. One one note on that it never really got that firm. And I think this, this course played a little more bomber friendly than it would have if it had been firmed up, which would have made the fairways play a lot smaller and, and more narrow. So I'm sure like the Wyndham Clark tee shot on 18, we'll, we'll probably get into that, but if that's much firmer, it might miss the fairway. And there's some other fairways out there that it would have become a little less of a long iron, just hit it as high as possible and stick it. It, you might have seen some craftier off the tee play if it was a little firmer, but I don't know that it needed to be. I mean, it played really well. What's your opinion on that? Well, I have like a number of different ways that I've been thinking about that this week. First of all, I definitely agree that it could have been firmer and I would have been a bit more entertained if the greens were less receptive to wedges, etc. And so, you know, First off, yeah, I definitely acknowledge that. But a few things to keep in mind. One, it's been a very wet winter in California. Extremely, unusually moist at LACC throughout this year. 
And the course is holding all of that. You can see it in the barrancas. They're not dry. They're full of vegetation. And that's pretty unusual. That course is usually pretty sand belty kind of in appearance. Right now it's, it's green. And that's not just because the USGA was out there with hoses watering down the entire thing. They couldn't have done that. That's just because California has had a wet winter. So that's one thing. The other thing is that during the tournament itself, we had relatively little sunshine. And the one day that we had of full sunshine was Saturday. And that's when the course really started to get a bit fiery. And it didn't get all the way there, but it was the firmest day. I wasn't on site on Sunday, so I can't really compare it. But I think it was the firmest day. You could see some dust in the air instead of there being a little bit of moisture in the ground. When I sat down, for instance, you can feel the moisture when you sit down, right? On Saturday, that wasn't there. It was dry. So that's another thing. The conditions didn't really assist super spicy turf realities. You know, it was a lot closer to the edge than people thought it was, but it really wasn't riding that edge in the way that like Shinnecock Hills did in 2018. And here's two other points because I'm a little hesitant to be like, it should have been firmer. I'm, I'm holding back on that for two reasons. One, if you do push it too far and things get a little bit unplayable, not to go full Zach Johnson, you lost the course, but it, it does actually undermine the quality of some of the shots out there. And you might, you might compromise a lot of shot value. So it's hard to push it all the way to the line. But, he, but here's the other point. I don't think I've heard this point made, but I was reflecting on this a lot Saturday night and into Sunday morning. LACC has tremendous variety, right? Hole 15 playing 81 yards, that, but it was you had to be super precise. Then you've got a stretch of three brawny par fours coming in 16, 17, 18. To achieve a proper firmness level that plays correctly for all of the shots that are required is extraordinarily difficult because it might have been cool to see it firmed up for how it would play off the tee or some approach shots where you have an eight iron in. But then is it even possible? Can you even hold shots on 16, 17, 18? Does it work there? Was 15 might have been impossible if it were any firmer. And, and that's, I think, a, a, I hadn't thought about it a ton, but when there's such variety, long irons, like short irons, it's hard to argue that one level of firmness that would be super firm would play play well for all of those different shots. So I, I was trying to reel it in a little bit, like maybe it could have been a little firmer, but overall I thought the setup was excellent. So aside from the firmness issue, aside from the, the turf issues, what were some other observations you had about the course? I think I have one main positive and one potential negative that I would like your opinion on to maybe keep me in check. So I think the, the biggest positive for me is that I feel confident and I'm, there's no way to know this, but I feel confident that when most people were watching the golf tournament, when players were going to a particular hole, the fan had context for what that hole was was about to test because there was variety and these holes have character. Like I think people knew hole 13, like gotta be precise on that tee shot or it goes way right and down the slope. 14, the par five, I think people were pretty familiar with. Really short par three on 15. Obviously, hole six, the, the semi-drivable par four, I think people knew. I, there are probably nine to ten holes that somebody who doesn't even follow golf that closely, if they watched multiple days of play, 
they knew what was coming. And I think that's a tremendous compliment to pay a golf course. So like Augusta in that way, I think some of these holes had a bunch of character. And clarity, the clarity of design is terrific at LACC. The features are big and bold and the lines that you can take to attack the hole or to play a little bit more conservatively are really well-defined and easy to see. And so, yeah, that's that's definitely a huge part of why I enjoyed LA North uh, so much. I know a lot of people didn't, but just personally, totally agree with that 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 assessment. So, what's your negative? The, so, one one potential negative. I, we always talk about shots of consequence, right? I want there to be you should be rewarded for a good shot. If it's if you hit a bad shot, there should be some penalty. I do think being a little bit critical of maybe the tee shots on three eight. And 18, three and eight are sort of funnel fairways where there wasn't a whole lot required out there. You could kind of just hit it into a big area and it was going to bounce down into a pretty advantageous spot. Now, I don't know if that's something to be critical of the architecture about or if, if I'm just, I think there's a difference between viewing a golf course purely through the lens of architecture and then viewing it through the lens of it being an entertainment product and a, a test of professional golf. And I think those shots failed a little bit as far as the entertainment value and how well it's testing players because they're hitting three woods on three and eight into really wide areas that it was just going to bound down. All end up in the same place. So is that, do you, as somebody who's more informed on architecture, has more of an appreciation for some of, just frankly, more knowledgeable, what's your reaction to me being a little bit turned off by that? Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that pre- uh, that premise. I don't think I am more knowledgeable. I think I probably am a little more familiar with how <clears throat> with how amateurs play LACC, right? I've played it a couple of times myself. <laughs> I don't hit it as far as Rory McIlroy. And so for me, the, the experience of playing LA North is is different. And so I can say, first of all, that you're right on the money with the drives on number three and number eight. Those ones stuck out to me too as ones that just really didn't work for this field in this tournament. But there is definitely a reason for that. There's no room to move those tees back. So those holes are basically the same as they were in 1928. They're the same length. And players are hitting driving irons so much farther than people used to hit hickory drivers. (laughs) In 1928, like truly, but, but that is the situation we're in. If you moved it back, do you think those holes play significantly better? Would be would be my counter argument. I think so. I think so. And and what here's why on number three, the idea is that the barranca or the finger of the barranca, it's kind of a tributary that cuts up the left center portion of that fairway, is sort of the risky carry hazard. That's what it's meant to be. If you carry that then you've done well and you're going to filter to this one spot at the bottom of a goalie in the fairway. That's about a 250 yard carry back in 1928. That was a hell of a carry. The other option on that hole is to play up to the right. And there's a couple of places that you can end up there. You can end up on a side Hill, or if you're pretty precise and you decide to aim basically well away from the line of the hole, you can kind of get up on top of a Hill there at the edge of the fairway and have a nice view of the green. And so that is the other option. Frankly, it is the option that I've used when I've played the hole because I cannot reliably carry my driver 250 yards. I can't really make that carry. So 
I have to play out to the right on that hole. And it is a very different experience. But with, I, I think with, with the firmness and how short probably the, the grass was in the fairways, I, I thought, and I, I would have to go back and look at the, uh, some shots that were pretty hit, hit pretty high up the right side. They're still kind of funneled down into the same area. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's a factor of the severity of the ground. Right. But also just how far everybody was hitting those shots. Yeah. Right. Okay. Because even if they hit them way up to the right, they were hitting them more than 250 yards. And so they made the carry. Fair. Right. That, that's the reward on that hole for being able to hit a ball that far. Um, for somebody who doesn't make that carry on a consistent basis, you play up to the right and your ball does not funnel down to that main goalie that everybody ended up in. But yes, everybody was in that goalie. It was covered in divots by the end of the week. The hole really didn't work very well for this field. Kind of the same deal on eight. And eight was a bit of a disappointment. I should have seen it coming. I love that hole for amateurs. But the thing is, everybody in the field can get past those bunkers on the left and just throw their ball into that big slope past the bunkers on the left and let it filter down next to the Barranca. And they can do it with a driving iron. A lot of them hit three wood off the tee. Some of them hit hybrid. I saw Gordon Sargent just hit a long iron out there. And, you know, the thing is, yeah, you can do that on that hole. The ball runs way from the left down to the bottom of the hill. But again, it's sort of like three where the assumption was when that hole was built that not everybody would be able to make that carry. And the reward for being able to carry those bunkers to like get past that trouble was being able to get that advantageous position so that you could go for the green and two. But there are a lot of other options on that hole. You know, just giving this as an example of how a mortal would play this hole, you could legitimately play it where you go out to the left, short of the bunkers, you are away from the branca, and then your option is to go out to the right with your next shot and lay up short of the green and leave yourself a wedge or a short iron in. But nobody took that option because they just didn't have to. I mean, they they can make the carry. And so that's the reality. That yeah, that's what maybe I was a little bit disappointed because I, I think the design of hole eight, it's the anatomy of like a brilliant par five where you get the reward for going down the right side of the fairway. You don't have to hit as much of a draw into the green. Like I was so excited to see that hole and it just didn't live up to the standard that I was hoping for. And then the other, the last nitpick I'd probably have is hole 18, which I was already worried wasn't a great finishing hole. I, I didn't think it was a particularly exciting hole to finish on. Wyndham's drive on Sunday, I think there's a legitimate gripe. Like that was well mishit. And it ends up in the fairway. Was pr- You can make the argument, well, then he didn't have an opportunity to make birdie if you go a little bit left. But nobody was really making birdie there. You just got a bunch of pars and then maybe some bogeys for some of the shorter hitters. So I don't think that was a great finishing hole, but to be fair, I don't I don't think 18 at Augusta at Augusta is a great finishing hole and no one complains about that. So it I overall I felt very positively about LACC. I'm just articulating the nitpicks and other than that, thought it was tremendous variety and really good test. Like hole 5, probably one of the coolest holes I think we've seen in i mean i won't say one of the coolest holes in major championship history but i think hole five was like a a strong strong golf hole yeah that was a pleasant surprise for me because that's not a hole that i had picked out as one of my favorites when i had played the course but in the tournament 
that hole is fascinating. I mean, the green kind of runs away a little bit. There are certain pin positions that are so hard to get to. You have to hit great shots on that hole in order to be successful. One note on 18. There's a reason that fairway is wide. It's really a hole that's built for 1928 where covering the distance that that hole is would require a running shot into the green on your second shot. Everybody would be hitting a shot along the ground into that green in order to get there. And now that's not the case. And so the strategy of the hole that and the width of the fairway don't make as much sense for this field. Then, then where does that leave us, right? If you know that going in, because if they had narrowed it, and I'm just to play devil's advocate, if they had narrowed it, I could see some fried egg ethos being like, this is compromising how it was supposed to be played, right? And kind of going that angle, but it might've played better for modern professional golf. I mean, better, it would have been more punishing. What do you think they should have? I mean, what do you do about that in the future on a hole that you know, hey, this isn't going to play particularly well for the modern player because they used to have a, a you know a super low run it in 30 yards, but now they th- that's not how players... They're going to have a seven iron in. W- what do you do about that? Do you still set it up the old way to adhere to George Thomas's original vision or do you contrive the setup a little bit? I don't know the right answer to that question. Yeah, you roll the ball back is what you do. I, I don't know yeah. what the right answer is either. I don't think rolling the ball back would really bring that hole back into play. It's one of those holes that's, in my mind, really a relic. And overall, I'm okay with a couple of holes being a relic. There's a couple of holes at Augusta National that are sort of relics. They just don't play at all like they used to play. But I'm okay with them being preserved from a museum perspective. And the fact that the game has moved past them, that's one part sad and two parts inevitable. But to narrow that fairway doesn't make that a great hole. It just makes it more punishing. And I'm sure a lot of people would have loved to see Wyndham Clark get in the rough there, right? It would have required required a more accurate drive. And in that sense, if if that's better, then 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 that's fine. But I think that also people... If, if Rory McIlroy had been in the same position and hit the same kind of, you know, banana slice drive that was nonetheless 180 ball speed. So he might have, must have hit it decently well, or maybe the equipment is just that ridiculous. If he had been saved in the same way by the width of the fairway, we would be having, I think, a different discussion about this. If Rory were one up going into 18 and that happened to him, I think I'd have the same reaction. Like You, you would. You, you know, you're, you're, you're intellectually consistent. I, I, I'll give you that, Joseph. For yeah, sure. But... All of that is to say, going back to the earlier point of there's a difference between maybe appreciating great architecture versus a modern entertainment product. And I will say, I think it's a fair nitpick of a major championship to conclude on a hole that is maybe a little bit boring, not a lot of scoring. That's much different than the rest of the course. Same way, I think it's a fair criticism of Augusta. And I think one a key ingredient of an awesome modern entertainment product is a little bit of uncertainty going into the last hole. I think that's part of what makes Sawgrass compelling is that if you're three up going into 17, it's not over. And as a sports fan, that's compelling. So if somebody says, hey, LACC was boring for me, I disagree. I think it was awesome. If somebody says there were some tee shots out there that didn't play particularly well and 18 felt like a dud, I, I can't push back too much on that. I, I would agree. But overall, 
this this notion that we shouldn't go back to LACC to me is crazy. Like that was an awesome brand of golf. If you didn't appreciate it, that's fine. I'm not going to try to tell you you're wrong, but I thought it was a great, great test. You know, Joseph, I think that's really well put. And I agree with basically all of it. Anything else you wanted to cover? Uh, I have some thoughts on like the whole Rory discourse and did he lose or did Wyndham win? I think this turns into a, a binary. Did Rory lose or did Wyndham win? He, here's what I will say. We only focus on a couple things and like a couple holes narratives take shape. This whole idea of like, was Rory aggressive enough? Was he conservative enough? I think his game plan was very good. Where I believe he lost the tournament, so to speak, was on Saturday. We're we're focusing so much on he couldn't make a putt on Sunday and, you know, terrible wedge on 14, which I agree with. Like 14 was a big mistake, but he missed on Saturday. He had a very straightforward up and down on four that he did not convert. He had a very straightforward up and down on six that he did not convert. And he didn't take advantage of number eight from the fairway. To, to me, that is where the tournament was lost. And he played exceptional golf almost the, the remainder of the tournament. On Sunday, sloppy three put on eight. Didn't execute on 14. I just mentioned five shots and he lost by one. Like, let's not overreact. And, and the only other thing, and then I'll, I've said my piece, is that this idea that Wyndham Clark is this like Michael, this this long shot like Sean McKeel type story, I think is is misguided. He's been tremendous this year. Wyndham Clark, when he won the Wells Fargo and designated event, people were saying like, okay, he's probably a Ryder Cupper. Like Wyndham Clark is a great golfer. He's having a breakout twenty twenty three. He hits the ball a long way. I think the setup was good for him. He's been gaining like a stroke per round with his irons. And he's a fabulous putter. Like, let's stop with this narrative that he wasn't a deserving champion. Like, I I don't think it's fair at all. If you listen to podcasts that sort of minutely track new players coming on the scene, whether it's like fantasy podcasts or the shotgun start, you know, where they have three (laughs) shows three times a week and they talk about a lot of different players. Wyndham Clark has come up for years, right? People have been saying for years, this guy is really, really good. I mean, just, you know, maybe he hasn't had the results yet, but my God, he just, he just profiles out to be an extraordinary player. That's been the word on Wyndham Clark. That's not hindsight 2020. This is not a Sean McKeel situation. This is, (laughs) this is a, a great player and he may not continue at this level, but it seems like he could. All right, let's take uh, one more quick break, and then Joseph and I will be back to do some recommendations. Our next partner is Athletic Greens. I take AG1 by Athletic Greens literally every day. I gave AG1 a shot because I noticed that my daily habits just weren't the healthiest and I wasn't always getting what I needed nutritionally. So now I take AG1 first thing in the morning, right before I take the kids out to the bus stop, and it just gives me an assurance that I've started my day the right way. Plus, it gives me a little boost of energy, which is always a good thing for a guy with my kind of life, with young kids, very active, a lot of work. That that little boost in the morning is just great. So. 
This past week at the U.S. Open, I went with my travel packs. I was there on site for a little while. And one of the things that happens when you're traveling and covering a golf tournament is that you don't exactly eat healthy food. I mean, really appreciated the media dining situation that the USGA provided. It was very, very good. But a lot of the food was was pretty greasy, which I love, you know, and, and I was I was very happy to eat it. But it didn't exactly provide the best nutritional value. So having those travel packs, being able to take some AG1 and support my gut health was a big deal during this past week, as it always is when I'm traveling. So if a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash the fried egg. That's athleticgreens.com slash the fried egg. Check it out. All right, we are back for recommendations. Joseph, what are you recommending this week? Well, I I think normally here I would give some kind of music recommendation because I listen to a lot of different music, but I am running dry right now. And the, the main recommendation that I think I could give that's not golf related, I recently watched a movie I loved and I had never heard of it. It's called In the Name of the Father. Oh, yeah. Daniel Day-Lewis? Daniel Day-Lewis, who, yeah. I, who I love. I didn't even know this movie existed until like three weeks ago. I watched it, thought it was incredible, and I would highly recommend it. Cool movie where the theme is truth and it is a true story. It, it covers the some civilian bombings between the the British and the Irish, and somebody gets falsely accused. Thought it was awesome. I've recommended it to a couple people who have all liked it, and I, I would recommend it to anybody. Sounds like you've seen it, Garrett. A long time ago. I was a big movie nerd when I was a teenager, and so I watched a lot of uh, uh, great movies like, like that then, and I had a bit of a Daniel Day-Lewis phase. And I think it was maybe the first... Daniel Day-Lewis movie that I had seen. And so I fully thought that that was his native accent (laughs) because he is so completely absorbed into that character. It's brilliant. Um, All right. So what I'm recommending is a little bit flimsy by comparison, honestly, (laughs) but it is golf related. And uh, just this morning, Tom Watson sent out an open letter to Jay Monahan and the PGA tour. And I don't think he's necessarily saying anything super new here. But what I appreciated about it was its clarity. It set out the issues really clearly about the proposed partnership between the PGA Tour and the PIF. But what I just most appreciated about this was Tom Watson's willingness to actually engage with the issues, not just to wave them off and say, I'm a golfer. I'm not going to concern myself with this stuff. This is not my job to be an expert on these matters. Instead, he's saying, no, I'm taking responsibility to learn about this stuff. And he admits at a couple of points, I don't have all the information about this. I know a little bit about it, but I need to learn more and I need to ask questions. And he does a great job of of just not letting anything off the hook. And I think that's a great model for leaders in this situation. There's been a void of leadership in this situation. There's been a void of moral leadership Specifically, people have just completely abdicated that responsibility to be moral leaders. And so I don't know where this is going to go with Tom Watson, whether he's going to eventually acquiesce to the situation like so many other people have. 
but his willingness to kind of rec- you know reckon with complex issues and put something out there that alone I think I commend and for that reason alone I, I would really recommend that people go read this this open letter it is a touch long it's longer than most of what people read on Twitter but uh, but I think you should seek it out look Garrett speaking truth to power I'm not sure our recommendations were that different after all <laughs> Are, are we comparing the troubles to uh, the PGA Tour's uh, current situation? Yes. <laughs> well, that's a great place to end, Joseph. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me. It's fun. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was edited by Matt Ruchus. Thank you, Matt. And in fact, Matt was out there this week at LACC, along with Cameron Hurtis, taking some terrific photos of the action at the U.S. Open. We've been publishing those photos on Twitter and Instagram and in our stories for the tournament. So all credit to Matt for not only being a great podcast editor, but also being a very talented photographer. So if you would like to support the fried egg, the single best thing that you can do is join Club TFE. This is a content offering that also comes with benefits like early access to events and discounts in the pro shop and stuff like that. But the main offering is in our Club TFE website where we publish content that's exclusive for members. This past week, we had a great video that Andy did on every hole at LACC or at least one feature from every hole at LACC. Um, And we also had some different things going on with LACC and US Open themed content, as well as a course profile that I wrote on Rustic Canyon, which is a course that's not far from LA, that's public, really well designed, and that I highly recommend that you seek out if you're in the area. So that's all in Club TFE. Go to thefriedegg.com slash membership to see what it's all about. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back again soon.